Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Hallelujah. Well, Shabbat Shalom. As you know, we're in this uh, marathon series on the Gospel of Mark. We're almost at the finish line. Today's part 42. Uh, if you've missed any other parts, we have all prior 41 parts now up online, and our, our, both on our YouTube channel and on our website. Uh, to next week, God willing, will be the last part, part 43, so uh, stay tuned for that. But today, I want to look at the very last part of chapter 15 of the Gospel of Mark and to see how all different groups of widely uh, diverse people were all drawn to Yeshua. So turn with me to Mark, part, uh, Mark chapter 15, beginning in verse 39, Mark 15, 39. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Yeshua heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, surely this was the Son of God. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Miriam the mother of James and Joseph, and, and Salome. Uh, in Galilee, these women had followed him and, and cared for his needs. Many other women had, uh, who had come up with him to, to Yerushalayim were also there. It was preparation day, that is, the day before the Shabbat. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the Sanhedrin, who was himself waiting for the Malkut HaShemayim, for the kingdom of God, uh, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Yeshua's body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Yeshua had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body of Joseph, uh, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph uh, bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. There he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Miriam, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Amen. So I want us to notice here three classes of people that Yeshua's death brings together. You've got, uh, put, this on, put this on the overhead. We've, you've got the Roman centurion. He's a pagan. You've got uh, the women who stayed with Yeshua to the very, very end. And you've got Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea, a member of the, of the Sanhedrin, a Pharisee, a Pharisee. So you have women and pagans uh, and Pharisees. Three groups of people who have very little in common and don't usually hang out together. And yet something has brought them together. All three groups uh, make positive responses to the death of Yeshua. Uh, so on the overhead, what we're going to learn here today is, number one, the world we all want uh, but don't have. Number two, the change we need. And three, how do we get it? So first, the world we all want. Notice all the women that are named here. Look at Mark 15, verse 40. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Yaakov and Yosef, uh, and Salome. In all four Gospels, when you get to the climatic events of Yeshua's uh, death, burial, and resurrection, all the male disciples vanish. <laughs> they're not around. Uh, they're scared. They're despondent. They're gone. And when it comes to the death, burial, and resurrection of Yeshua, the only followers of him uh, that are there through all three of these key events are his female followers. In verse 40, it's only the women mentioned who were there when he died. Uh, in Mark 15, 47, 
It's only the women who saw him where he was buried. Look at that. It says Mary Magdalene and Mary, mother of Yosef, saw where he was laid. And we're going to see next week in Mark 16, it's the women who are first to see him resurrected and to see the empty tomb. It's like the men disappear and the women dominate the final part of the narrative. Now, this is extremely interesting. Here's why. In both Jewish and Roman culture, and in both Jewish and Roman jurisprudence, women's testimony had no legal status. Their evidence could not be used in court. Why? Because there was a universal understanding at the time across all the cultures in the ancient world about women's inferiority and unreliability. And yet, in spite of that, at the most crucial moment in the history of salvation, God trusts a group of women with the whole story. They're the lifeline of the gospel at this point. No one else knows what's going on. Only the women see and know what God is up to. In fact, the only disciples who could say, I saw the death, the burial, and the resurrection were women. God makes women his witnesses in a time in history in which no other culture or society or religion would have trusted them with this key role. No one else would have. What's going on? C.S. Lewis wrote this brilliant essay called The Inner Ring. And in this essay, he says, one of the main and deepest desires of the human heart is to get on the inside, uh, the inner rings, uh, the, the little circles of recognition and status and power. And most people will do whatever it takes to get there, to get in there, uh, to, go to, the right, go, go to the right schools, uh, have the right jobs and titles, uh, know the right people, have the right connections, uh, be members of the right clubs. Uh, do whatever uh, you can to get on the inside of these inner rings, the, the inner circles. And then once you're there, other people have to come to you. Other people have to center on you. Other people have to dance around you. Once you're in, other people have to orbit around you. Uh, and, the fact, and, the, and the fact that we all want this, that's a great metaphor for what's wrong with the world and what's wrong with the human heart. Think of it like this. A solar system is only a system because all the planets, in essence, agree that there's only one center. Uh, and all the planets orbit around that center. But imagine now if each planet said, no, I'm going to be the center of the universe. Imagine each planet becomes stationary and uses all of its gravitational force to get all the other planets to revolve around it. So every planet says, I'm the center. You all have to revolve around me. Now, if everybody insisted and everyone else has to revolve around them, what do you get? You don't have a solar system anymore. <laughs> you have a cataclysm. <laughs> Worlds colliding. Uh, a cosmic version of an interstate pileup. <laughs> a cosmic car wreck. And that's the summary of human history. That's what individuals and clans and tribes and ethnic groups and nations and empires have been doing to each other for all of human history. That's the lust for the inner ring. Now, even though that's one of the great passions of the human heart, to be on the inside, to have everyone revolve around you, center around you, there's also another very different uh, passion of the human heart as well that we all have, a passion for justice. So, for example, uh, uh, Kohelet, Ecclesiastes uh, 4, verse 1 says this, 
I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed. Uh, power was on the side of their oppressors, and they had no comforter. More recently, on the overhead, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. said this. He said, I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the, the true meaning of its creed that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood and that my children will live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin but by the content of their character. That is a longing for justice. It's not an obsession with being on the inner ring, uh, but it's reaching out to our neighbor in love. Uh, even as scripture commands us in uh, Leviticus 19.18, by Yikra, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, now, because this whole, put the next slide. Uh, now, because this whole concept of justice has, has become so controversial today, right, and so uh, politically charged, uh, I want to say a brief word today about justice. I want to contrast the popular modern ideal of social justice versus what I'm going to call biblical justice. Because the two are utterly opposite and incompatible. Many well-meaning believers today uh, bandy about this popular term, social justice. Uh, but as uh, the overhead, as uh, Inigo Montaya said in The Princess Bride, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what, what you think it means. <laughs> Biblically, justice in Hebrew, mishpat or tzedakah, uh, is receiving what you're due as a human being made in the image of God. It is not synonymous with man-made laws. For example, uh, the law in the U.S. says that murdering unborn children in the womb is legal. Rather, justice is defined by God and his word. Again, in Martin Luther King Jr., he wrote in this famous letter from a Birmingham jail, the next slide, he says, a just law is a man-made code that squares with the moral law of God. The law of God, biblical justice, is manifested in the Ten Commandments and summarized by Yeshua in the so-called royal law of loving God and loving your neighbor. We as believers must be passionate about justice. Uh, not to cede this priority uh, to secular, anti-God forces. We should be the champions of justice. Psalm 82, verse 3. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Isaiah 117. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Biblical justice includes things like, like ending slavery all over the world, uh, fighting poverty, uh, defending the unborn. Modern social justice, in contrast, is a satanic counterfeit that's seducing much of the body of Messiah today. It's a cultural Marxist secular ideology developed by these, on the overhead by these people, first by Karl Marx, then expanded upon by uh, Michel Foucault and, and Jacques Derrida, uh, and Antonio Gramsci. And if you are philosophers out there, you, you know these names. Uh, it does not look, this concept of social justice does not look to the individual. Rather, it splits all people up uh, into groups. 
uh, into two warring camps, uh, the oppressed and the oppressors. Uh, and these two groups are forever at war with each other. Uh, there's no forgiveness, there's no reconciliation, or no, and, and there's no peace possible. The oppressed includes uh, all ethnic minorities, uh, women, LGBTQ, Muslims, secularists, and the oppressors are all Caucasians, all males, all heterosexuals, and all Judeo-Christians. Notice, according to this theory, your individual heart does not matter. All that matters is which group to which you are assigned. And all their political agenda is redefined in terms of the, their new definition of justice. So, for example, abortion on demand now becomes reproductive justice. Socialism becomes economic justice. Forcing believers to affirm gay marriage becomes LGBTQ justice. Having males who claim to be females uh, and use girls' restrooms and locker rooms and compete in women's sports becomes trans justice. As you see, social justice is not biblical justice. Rather, it's grievance culture imposing totalitarianism upon anyone who disagrees with their agenda. By this definition, Yeshua himself would be guilty of social injustice. Uh, he chose 12 Jewish men to be his apostles. No racial or ethnic or religious or gender diversity. No, just 12 Jewish men. Uh, he gave one servant five talents, one three talents, and one another one talent. He was guilty of, in today's terms, economic injustice. He says marriage is between one male and one female. LGBT injustice. He was for the nuclear family, which, which the uh, BLM official website says is, is a racist concept. So it's trans injustice. <laughs> so what are some differences between biblical justice and social justice? We're going to put on the overhead uh, six differences. So number one, biblical justice reflects God's character. It's pure, it upholds good, it denounces evil. Social justice is often the opposite. It does not flow from God's holiness, but from fallen man's political agenda. Modern social justice promotes overthrowing the nuclear family, undermines male headship in the body of Messiah, promotes Marxist socialist uh, totalitarian economic uh, state control, uh, advocates the LGBTQ agenda, and transgender redefinition of male and female. And number two, biblical justice is objective. Deuteronomy 17 requires two or more witnesses. Social justice is, uh, is subjective. Unsubstantiated allegations of a single witness can bring down even a Supreme Court nominee. Number three, biblical justice is impartial. God is no respecter of persons. He deals with us not on the basis of our skin color, not on the basis of our sex. He deals with us on the basis of our sin. Our ethnic or racial or religious or socioeconomic identity is not what matters, but whether or not we are in Messiah Yeshua. Vayikara, Leviticus 19.15. Do not pervert justice. Don't show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great but judge your neighbor fairly. In contrast, social justice is premised on purposely showing partiality. It's not, it's not only expected, it's required. So for example, you're hired or not, or you're promoted or not, based on how many categories of alleged oppression you fall into. 
look how far we've come in just 50 years from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s declaration that we should be judged not based on the color of our skin, but based on the content of our character. Modern social justice says the exact opposite. He would, Dr. King would be denounced today by them. Biblical justice includes love and forgiveness and reconciliation. Social justice is a zero-sum game focused on power and privilege, uh, grievance, jealousy, oppression, victimization. It fixates on your outward identity markers like class, race, gender, sexual orientation. It is openly hostile to Judeo-Christian morality and militantly against the natural family and, and traditional sexuality. It focuses on redistribution of wealth by an all-powerful state apparatus. Number five, biblical justice seeks to promote equal opportunity and, and equal dignity because we're all made in God's image, an equal respect and fairness. But the fruit of modern social justice is suspicion, hostility, enmity, uh, entitlement, grievance culture, labeling and pitting one group and one class against another. And it's motivated by, by, by anger, by envy, by jealousy and resentment. The heart motivation behind the modern social justice movement, because it's man-focused and not God-focused, is all wrong. And then finally, number six, biblical justice is summarized in 2 Corinthians 5.16. From now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. As believers, we are, not, we are not to classify people according to human categories. People in the world, they judge according to the flesh. This person is rich and privileged. This person's not. This person is a sexual minority and should be given special rights. This person is not and, and should be disfavored. But as believers, we're to view all people as created in the image of God. But also to view all people as sinners needing salvation. Modern social justice and its cousins, CRT and intersectionality, create opposing groups to sow division and discord. But we are, as believers, we're to view all people according to the Spirit. We understand biblically there's only two races, the race of Adam and the race of Messiah, fallen man and reborn, redeemed humanity. We're to call all people to the hope of the gospel and salvation in Messiah Yeshua, where we become a new humanity, where it says in Galatians 3.28, there's no longer Jew or Gentile or male or female or slave or free because we are all one in Messiah Yeshua. So in the overhead, uh, let me sum this up by saying, yes, there is, next slide, yes, there is real racism in the world. There is real evil. There is real hatred. There is real injustice. But the answer to these evils is a God who saves, a Messiah who transforms human hearts, a gospel that turns enemies into friends and family. So our desire for justice, uh, and to be on the, on the one hand, and to be in the inner ring on the other hand, they're at war with each other. But here in the gospel, God takes this group of women, trusts them with something that no other society would have ever trusted them with, when God brings these women into his inner ring, we see the Lord is no respecter of persons. He treats all people with dignity and honor. And the, Lord's, and the Lord knows that societies will never be changed until you first trans transform 
the individual human heart. And this transformation, uh, this regeneration, only happens through the gospel, whereby we become new creations in Messiah Yeshua. For those of you old enough to remember, back in the 60s and 70s, the head of the Soviet Union was Leonid, uh, Leonid Brezhnev. And during this time, there was a, a, a popular joke prevalent on the streets of Moscow. It went like this. Brezhnev invited his mom to come visit him. And he, when his mom came, he said to her, Hey, mom, I made out pretty good. Look at the size of the home I live in. Look at all the limos in my garage. I've got a house in the Baltic and a luxury yacht. Uh, I've got this, I've got that, I've got a private jet. I've made out pretty well, haven't I, mom? And his mother turns and says to him, Yes, Leonid, but what happens if the communists take over? <laughs> you see, this is what social justice warriors don't understand. It doesn't matter what political system you try to install. The problem is the human heart. So, point number one on the overhead. We don't have, we don't have the world we want because there's something wrong with our heart. Number two, how do we get the world that we want? What's the change that we need? And the change we need is exemplified in this man here in our passage, Joseph of Arimathea. Look at Mark 15, verse 43. Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Yeshua's body. Joseph of Arimathea, he was prominent, and the word here means powerful. Matthew also tells us he was rich. John also tells us he was a friend of Nicodemus. Nicodemus was also a Pharisee, also a member of the Sanhedrin, was also rich. Pharisees were devout, Bible-believing, Doctrinally orthodox, very strict uh, keepers of the law. And the Gospel of John tells us that Nicodemus and Joseph went together to bury Yeshua's body. So look at the contrast uh, the people, of the people at the cross. We've got Nicodemus and Joseph, both Pharisees. We've got the Roman centurion, a pagan, an idol worshiper, immoral. Religiously and spiritually, the centurion is an outsider. Whereas Nicodemus and Joseph are the consummate insiders. Uh, they're in the inner ring. And then we have a third group is, is the women. As we mentioned, uh, in ancient society, the women had no power. They were marginalized. And here are Joseph and Nicodemus, these consummate insiders, aristocratic, uh, wealthy men. They're, on the inner, they're in the inner ring. The centurion and the women are the outsiders. And yet they're all here together at the foot of the cross. And they're all responding to Yeshua together in faith. And there's a huge change happening in Joseph and Nicodemus. Their hearts are being changed. In verse 43, you see the word boldly there? That he, um, Joseph boldly went to Pilate to ask for the body. Uh, Joseph and Nicodemus are getting a courage they did not have before. It's a great courage to go and ask for the body. Why? The Romans... Think about this. They had just tried Yeshua and found him guilty of high treason. And, and, and the Jewish Sanhedrin had found him guilty of blasphemy. And now Joseph and, and uh, Nicodemus are willing for the first time to say out loud what they've been believing in secret. John tells us that Joseph and Nicodemus were secret followers of Yeshua. They liked him. They followed him. that They believed in him. But they didn't want anyone else to know. But now, when it's really dangerous, 
ironically, now they're willing to risk everything to bury him and to come out and to show that they're sympathizers, to show you sympathizers of Yeshua to the Roman establishment, to the Jewish establishment. This was horribly risky. But something has happened to them. First, uh, their attitude towards their own power and their own status has changed. Why? Power and money and status tend to become not just something you have, but something you are. That's how you feel good about yourself. That's how you know who you are. Uh, because, because now I can wear these clothes, uh, and I can have this car, and, and this house, uh, and go to these restaurants, uh, and, and vacation in these places, and belong to these country clubs, uh, and I know these people, uh, and I live in this gated community. That's who I am. And that's what happens when you have money and power and status. And you quickly compromise in a thousand unconscious ways if to do the right thing would jeopardize your money or your power or your status itself. But that's what Nicodemus and Joseph are doing. They're using their power and status as members of the Sanhedrin to go and get Yeshua's body. And by doing so, they're jeopardizing their power. They're risking the loss of everything. And that means something is going on here. They don't have the same attitude towards their power and their money and their status that they had before. Something has changed. Before they were afraid of anyone knowing that they were following Yeshua uh, because they were afraid of, of loss of status or money or power, that, that they might suffer if anybody found out. But now what's happened? Their attitude towards their power and their money and their status has changed. It's not as important to them. Uh, there's an identity shift going on. Something is now more important to them than their power and their money and their status. So much so, they're now willing to risk it all. And it's not just Joseph, that Joseph and Nicodemus are getting more bold. Ironically, they're also getting more humble in a way. So they're not only getting more strong, but paradoxically, they're getting more weak. Look at Mark 15, 46. So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in linen, placed it in a tomb cut out of rock, and he rolled the stone against the entrance of the tomb. In traditional first century Jewish custom, when someone died, uh, they washed the body, wrapped it in linen, anointed it with spices and perfumes, buried it either in a grave or in a tomb. Now this Jewish process of burial, think about it, was a dirty job. Think about Yeshua's body, how, what it was like on the cross. Uh, he'd been beaten, bruised, nailed, crown of thorns, spear in his side, blood everywhere, maybe some of his guts pouring out from his side. It was a stomach-turning, loathsome, dirty job. And that's, that's why traditionally, it was always done by slaves and servants and women. Uh, free men did not do this. Aristocratic, wealthy, prominent men certainly didn't do it. Priests and Levites and Pharisees would never do it because to handle a corpse made you ritually unclean, you unfit for temple service. But here's Joseph and Nicodemus taking Yeshua's body from the cross, washing it, wrapping it in linen. So Joseph, he's actively participating in this dirty task normally reserved for women and slaves and servants. Normally, this would never happen. Something has changed in Joseph. He's doing something incredibly culturally inappropriate. 
He's not standing on his dignity. His dignity is no longer as important. His status isn't so important to him. His power isn't so important to him. He's becoming the type of person this world needs to be an agent of justice. He's losing his lust for the inner ring. Why? The book of John tells us that Joseph's friend Nicodemus had gone to Yeshua secretly at night uh, because he didn't want anyone to know. Because at the time, his power was all important to him. Uh, his power was his identity. Power and money and status wasn't just something he had. It was something, it was who he was. So Nicodemus, he comes to Yeshua at night to talk to him. And what does Yeshua say to him? Look at John 3.3. 3. Yeshua replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Pretty radical. Yeshua was talking to a Pharisee, an extremely devout religious man, a Torah teacher, and he says, if you want to enter my kingdom, you must be born again. What is Yeshua saying? He's saying, in essence, you, Nicodemus, have to start over from zero. Nothing you've done is any benefit. Nothing you've done achieves anything for getting into my kingdom. That's radical. Now, now Joseph and Nicodemus, you know, they may have said, okay, maybe prostitutes have to be born again. They had to start from ground zero. But us, we've done lots of, lots of good things. And we've avoided lots of bad things. What do you mean, born again? Couldn't we at least start as young adults or adolescents? <laughs> or at worst, children? And Yeshua says, no. Yeshua says, prostitute, Bible teacher, pagan, Pharisee, you all are sinners. You all need to be radically saved by grace. You're all on the same footing. You all need to be born again from above. Why? Why would that be? I'm sure Nicodemus didn't understand. I'm sure Joseph did not understand. But here's what Yeshua was saying. Uh, he's saying there's actually two different ways to be your own Savior and Lord. Two ways for you to be at the center, make everybody else revolve around you. Uh, two ways to express the natural self-centeredness of the human heart. As a pagan and as a Pharisee. How does a pagan be his own Savior and Lord? Well, that's easy, right? By breaking all the moral rules. <laughs> By violating the law of God. By doing whatever he wants. Sex, drugs, violence. But how does a Pharisee be his own Savior and Lord? By keeping all the rules and by being so outwardly good that he says, God, you now owe me. You've got to bless me. You've got to take me to heaven. Uh, and everyone else should bow before me because I'm so good. Now, these are two radically different approaches to life, but at bottom, they're the same in that they're both radically self-centered lives. They're both ways of putting yourself at the center and making everyone and everything else revolve in orbit around you. One guy saying, I don't want anything to do with God. That's the pagan way. The other one saying, I believe in God. I obey God. But the Pharisee is really making himself his own Savior and Lord because he's saying, if I live a good enough life, God owes me. Uh, God has to save me. It's on the overhead. That's why Yeshua says, prostitute, Bible teacher, pagan, Pharisee, centurion, member of the Sanhedrin, 
You all must be born again. You all must see that you each need my radical grace. And that's the revolution that now has begun in Joseph and Nicodemus' heart and begun to change them. Look at Mark 15, 45. When Pilate learned from the centurion that Yeshua was dead, he gave the body to Joseph. Note that back last chapter, Mark 14, Yeshua had said to his disciples at his last Pesach Seder, uh, take, eat, this is my body. Take my body. And Joseph of Arimathea, in a way, is the first person to literally do what Yeshua asked him to do. Now, what does Yeshua mean by, by take? What does it mean to take his body? It doesn't just mean to believe Yeshua died for you, that his body, represented by the matzah on Passover, uh, was broken for you. But take also means to grasp, to grasp his death and resurrection, to think about it, to meditate on it, to understand it, uh, to go deep into the meaning of it, and you take it in, uh, and you digest it like bread. You make it a part of you. And that's what, been, what has now been happening to Joseph and to Nicodemus. Because Yeshua's death on the tree has begun to change them. It's begun to shift their identity. Something now is more important to them than their power. Something now is more important to them than their status. So they can now reach out to people of other races and religions and ethnicities and classes and socioeconomic status. Uh, and they could also do things like help prepare the body of Yeshua that, that was not appropriate for people of their status. And they'd be willing to, to risk their power and their status to become agents of biblical justice for the sake of the gospel. Why? Because they themselves have now become recipients of God's free grace, free gift of his radical saving grace. So what does it mean to take the body? to grasp Yeshua's sacrificial death. It means to be born again and transformed like the centurion and like Joseph and Nicodemus. And most of us, if we're honest, at one time we have been pagans or Pharisees. And a lot of us have been both at different times. <laughs> we spoke a few weeks ago about what the centurion saw. Here's what I think Joseph and Nicodemus saw. Yeshua was in the ultimate inner ring. He was from all eternity one with the Father and the Spirit. You can't get any more inner ring than that. From all eternity, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit have been honoring each other, glorifying each other, loving each other. Yeshua says in John 17, the Father and the Son and the Spirit, they glorify each other. What does that mean? To glorify means instead of saying, you center on me, uh, you say, I center on you. I revolve around you. I defer to you. I harbor you in the center of my being. I love you. I, I give myself to you. The Father and the Son and the Spirit have been doing that for all eternity. And so it must grieve the heart of God to see everyone here on earth saying, everyone's got to revolve around me. My needs first. My desires are prominent, are, are, are paramount. You know, uh, 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 my preferences have priority. Me, me, me. Uh, what about me? What about my needs? Enough about you. Let, let's talk about me. <laughs> That's our attitude. But the heart of reality 
at the heart of who God is, in his very essence, he's other-oriented. You see, the Father's not saying, how can the Son and the Spirit revolve around me? But rather, each person in the triunity of the Godhead is seeking to revolve around the other two. And when you have three persons, each of which is trying to revolve around the other two, you have a beautiful dance uh, on the overhead. C.S. Lewis puts it like this. Uh, in Yeshua faith, God's not an impersonal force or a static thing. He's not even one person, but a dynamic, pulsating activity, a life, a, a living drama, a kind of dance, in constant mo movement of overture and acceptance, each person of God's triunity encircling the others. And now realize that Yeshua left all this he left the inner ring to come to earth and to die for you and for me. When he went to the cross, he was centering on us. Yes, of course, we are to serve him. But he also said, incredibly, in Mark 10, verse 45, I came not to, to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. The primary thing Yeshua came to do is, is not to be served, but to serve. Uh, not, not to be circled, but to circle. And to show you how it's done. To so radically empty himself of all his glory and his interests and his needs to serve you. So that you, and so that when you see this, you'd, you would see, Yeshua, you are paying the penalty for my sin. Deity serving humanity. Yeshua, you see, you see Yeshua circling around you. And if you truly see this, it will change everything in your life. And that's what happened to Joseph and to Nicodemus. This is the secret of self-giving. When, when, when we touch self-giving, we touch the heart of all reality. Again, C.S. Lewis on the overhead puts it like this. For, for the eternal word also gives himself in sacrifice. When Yeshua was crucified... He did hear in the wild weather of his outlying provinces that which he had done at home in glory and gladness. Because from the foundation of the world, the Son had been glorifying the Father and the Father the Son. Therefore, when Yeshua came to earth to pay the penalty for your sins and mine, uh, and Joseph and Nicodemus, when they saw what he was doing, and then they saw that all their life they had lusted after the inner ring. All their life they had said, everybody else, circle around me. But the crucifixion and seeing the reality of what Yeshua had done totally changes them. And if you see it, and if you grasp it, it will change you as well. So in the overhead, one more time, C.S. Lewis goes on to say, from the highest to the lowest, therefore, self exists to be abdicated, to get out of the center. And by that abdication, it becomes more truly itself. Uh, to be thereupon yet, the more abdicated, and so on forever. This is not a principle we can escape. The only thing outside of this system of self-giving is hell. Hell with all its fierce imprisonment of self-absorption. But self-giving is absolute reality. On the overhead, three applications. Number one, do you see why the gospel doesn't just make you happy and take you to heaven, but makes you an agent of true biblical justice in this world? 
It makes you a person who voluntarily shares your power and resources with others. Not out of government compulsion, but by treating each person as an individual made in God's image. And not merely as a member of some outward identity group. And as a born-again believer who sees all people as individuals made in God's image, you are now able to reach out to other people of all races and ethnicities and classes that you otherwise wouldn't. Because the gospel says we're all equally sinners. And therefore, there's no room for arrogance or pride or, or superiority. Because each of you are so bad that Yeshua had to die for you and for me. And this humbles us. But Yeshua also says, I love you so much, I was glad to die for you. And that affirms you and accepts you to the skies. So you don't need anymore to focus on power and money and status to get your identity. So number one, do you see how the gospel changes you into agents of love and service and charity and compassion and justice in the world? Number two, in the overhead, do you see how the body of Messiah, therefore, is filled with people who, apart from the gospel, would probably never hang out together? Let's be honest. <laughs> and the more we understand, I mean, the more we live out the gospel, the more we'll be bringing people together who in the natural would be very unlikely to get together as brothers and sisters in Messiah, loving and deferring to and serving one another. On the overhead, as one commentator puts it, what binds believers together is not our common education or our common race or our common income or our common politics or our common nationality or anything else of that sort. Believers come together not because they form a natural collection, but because they all have been saved by Yeshua. We're a band of natural enemies turned into friends who love one another for Yeshua's sake. Biblical love is mutual love among what, otherwise, uh, among, uh, what would otherwise be social incompatibles. Love that. Excuse me. So number one, uh, sorry about that. Number one, the gospel will turn you into agents of biblical justice. Number two, the gospel will create the most unique human community in the world. Women, pagan, Pharisees, all coming together. And number three, on the overhead, we tend to radically change, like Joseph of Arimathea, through some sort of trauma. The beauty and radical nature of God's grace and you seeing your need for God's grace almost always happens through some kind of trauma. Why did Joseph, uh, who had been, been uh, scared of anyone ever finding out that he was a believer, a secret follower of Yeshua, why did he reveal his faith at a time when it was even more dangerous for him to do so? I believe it was the tra his trauma of seeing the Sanhedrin, of which he was a member, putting Yeshua to death. How did that happen with Joseph right there in the courtroom? There's a good chance he chickened out. He said nothing. And as he watched Yeshua die, he was struck in the heart. And he was convicted. And he realized, I need God's grace. Seeing your sin and the need for Messiah's mercy is always traumatic. I'm going to close with this. It's probably my favorite example of, of what this trauma can look like from, from a great short story called Revelation by Flannery O'Connor. The story is about a, a Mrs. Turpin 
who's one of the best Pharisees ever, ever depicted in literature. <laughs> She's a white, lower, middle-class woman living in the South in the 1930s. And she's sitting in a waiting room of a doctor's office. And sitting all around her are people of different races and different classes and different temperaments and different body types, different parts of town. And she's loudly talking to another woman in the waiting room. And all she's doing is clucking her tongue about that type of person. You know how, you know how they are. Uh, you know how those people are. And she's so self-righteous and so unself-aware and by the way, we're all guilty of this, of being self-righteous and being totally unself-aware about it. And because sadly, it's often the way men talk about women and women talk about men. And the rich talk about the poor and the poor talk about the rich. And Democrats talk about Republicans, Republicans about Democrats. And blacks and whites and artists and business people and blue collar and white collar. The universal human self-righteousness, it's so well depicted in this story. But as she's blathering on and talking down about everybody else, there's this young girl sitting next to her, reading a book, and she's listening, and as she's listening, she's getting madder and madder. Mrs. Turpin, she's going on and on about how good she is, about how bad everybody else is, and the girl is getting madder and madder. And interestingly, this young girl's name is Mary Grace. And finally, Mrs. Turpin says, what I think, who I could have been beside myself, I just feel like shouting, thank you, Jesus, thank you, Jesus, <laughs> for making me who I am. And at that point, Mary Grace explodes. First, she takes this book, by the way, entitled Human Development, and throws it at Mrs. Turpin, hits her in the eye. <laughs> then she leaps across the coffee table, grabs Mrs. Turpin, and starts to choke her. And as people restrain Mary Grace and, and pull her off Mrs. Turpin, Mrs. Turpin gets up all dazed, uh, looks over at Mary Grace and says, what have you got to say for yourself, young lady? And Mary Grace says, go back to hell where you came from, you old warthog. <laughs> and Mrs. Turpin gets our revelation. That's the name of the story, revelation. She starts to really see herself. And later that day, she's out in the, in the backyard she has this dialogue with God, and she's really mad, and she starts to confront the Lord. And she says, what do you mean sending me a message like that? How am I, both me and some kind of, some kind of hog? <laughs> How can I be saved and from hell also? How can I be saved and still a sinner? Accepted, but still in the flesh. Of course, Pharisees do not believe this. And so she's struggling to admit her sin and her carnality and still walking in the works of the flesh. So she complains to the Lord, why me? Uh, uh, there's no trash around here, black or white, that I haven't helped, that I haven't given to. I break my back every day, working to the bone, helping others, doing for the church. If you like those, that trash better, then go get yourself some trash, God. Exactly how am I like them? I could quit working, you know, take it easy, be lazy and filthy, lounging about all day, drinking root beer, dipping snuff, spinning on the ground. I could be nasty. A final surge of fury shook her, and she cried out to God, who do you think you are? And at that moment, the sun sets. She sees a purple streak in the sky, a visionary light settled in her eyes. And she sees this vast swinging bridge extending upwards from the earth through a field of living fire. Upon it, 
was this vast horde of souls marching towards heaven. There were whole companies of people that she thought of as trash. Battalions of freaks and lunatics shouting and clapping and leaping like frogs. Then she saw, to her surprise, coming at the very end of the parade, a tribe of people uh, whom she recognized as, as, as being one with her, uh, as being those who, like yourself, like herself, had always had a little bit of everything and the God-given wit to use it right. But they were marching behind the others with great dignity, accountable as they had always been for good order and common sense and respectability, and they alone were singing on key. Yet she could see by their shocked and altered faces that even their virtues were being burned away. In a moment, the vision faded. In the woods around her, the invisible cricket choruses had struck up, but what she heard were the voices of the souls climbing upward into the starry field and shouting, Hallelujah. My holy brothers and sisters of Etzchayim, grace will always be traumatic. It will hit you in the face. It might make you snarl. It will show you who you really are. It always happens traumatically, but it is worth it. Amen. Let's stand and pray. Hallelujah. I'd like the music team to come on up. Hallelujah. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for this passage showing us the, the women and the pagans and the Pharisees all coming together to worship you at the cross. All uniting is one in Yeshua. No longer are they grasping for the inner ring of, of status and money and power. Because Yeshua, you are the member of the greatest inner ring of all time. Father, Son, and Spirit. And in you, Yeshua, there's no longer any spiritual or class distinctions between Jew and Greek, male and female, slave and free. We are all one in you, Yeshua. We are one faith family. One covenant community. Meaning the whole human race is either in Adam or in you, Yeshua. You are the only distinction that counts. You, are, uh, you see us ultimately not as part of this group or that group based on some outward criteria, but you see us as either in Adam, in our fallen state, or in you, the redeemed of the Lord. You, Yeshua, are our ultimate identity. And everyone in you is a brother or sister in your adopted family. So help me, Lord, today to find my identity in you, not in my power or my money or my status, only in you. Help me, Yeshua, to take your body today, to grasp it, to adjust the meaning of what you did for me on the tree. Help me today to humble myself and repent and to center my life on you, to evolve and to orbit around you and to serve you, Lord, and to serve others, to self-sacrificially serve those around me, even as you came, Lord, not to be served, but to serve and to give your life as a ransom for many. Let the be true of my life in service to you and to others. In your name we pray. Amen. Shabbat shalom.